It's the best. It's absolutely the best. And and yeah, I, I love let you hit on that because to even get yourself into the position to be at mile 60 on that 135, you've had to do so many nights where the cameras are off, the lights are off, no one knows, and you're out training, running the steps at 11 p.m. or getting up at 4 a.m. to crank out your burpees. Or, you know, instead of going to whatever on Saturday, you know, I drive out to the mountains here in East County and I'll run out there for five hours. And, you know, no one, no one knows you're out there and you're just out there banging it out. And it's like all those moments over time build up and then they build that unbreakable spirit in you and that mental fortitude so that when you're in that moment at mile 60, you can draw back on those experiences and overcome and persevere. And that's, that's what I love about it. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. George and I talked about three big topics in this episode. The first was George Floyd, the demonstrations and riots from the point of view of a man watching his businesses and his community's businesses vandalized and destroyed. But you'll also hear him reflect as a man who dismissed Colin Kaepernick's taking a knee and in his view at the time, disrespecting a flag. Now, why did George Chimmel have that view of it was disrespectful? Because at the time of in 2016, when that was going on, he was supporting veterans, especially veteran suicide, through incredibly long runs that he would raise money for to benefit them. He was running ultra marathons, 100 mile plus runs all around the world. The more that he ran for others, the more rewarding it became for him to where he ran across the country, almost 3000 miles through injury. My key takeaway from what he was talking about was that he got more out of it than he put into it for serving others. When he was just doing it for himself, he got something. But when he did it for others, he got a lot, a lot more. And coming back to the George Floyd demonstrations, he reflected, and you'll hear him talk about this, he reflected on how he changed his views or how his views are changing from what seemed so obvious to him before. I heard him showing humility and vulnerability. We talked about what you get when you find your limits and go past where you thought they were and how much more you get from helping others than just helping yourself. That's, I think, his viewpoint on these things going on. It's not exactly what you would expect. I think it's valuable. In the end, he ended up explaining better than I why I act on leadership in the environment, probably because he's done so much more. So listen and tell me if you don't feel that whatever you're doing, no matter how much people tell you it won't make a difference, or how much people tell you that it's more than you have to, that you will want to do more after listening to George. A few years of not flying for me, of avoiding eating unhealthy products that end up not tasting good anyway, they feel so small. I feel no matter how much people say, oh, you've done so much, it feels so small, partly because I can do so much more, but because I've barely scratched the surface of what I could get back. That's what I find stewardship about, giving and getting in proportion. Let's listen to George. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with George Chimmel. How are you doing? Hey, buddy. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good to talk to you, too. And we were just before coming on, we were talking about the last time I spoke to you, you talked about you're running across the country, among other things. And then since then, we've had the whole George Floyd sparked the nationwide everything. And we're in the middle of that. And actually, you asked to postpone because you got hit with it. Your community got hit. And I don't see how we can start without talking about that. When your email said you had to board things up, uh, you're anticipating a lot of serious things happening in your area. Where are you and what happened? 
if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in downtown San Diego, right next to Petco Park, where the Padres play. And I own my uh, F45 fitness studio right there. And, you know, after the George Floyd stuff broke and uh, the national protests kind of started rolling out, I mean, we got hit pretty hard here in San Diego. I, I wouldn't say it was as bad as LA or Philly or some of the other cities back in the East Coast, but major protesting, 6,000, 8,000 people broke into some looting, some rioting. It kind of developed off there. And I will say, I was in the midst of the crowds a little bit because I wanted to get my own firsthand unbiased opinion. And I will say 98% of it was totally calm, was real protesters there for the mission, for the right reasons, and they were peaceful. But then you had your handful of hooligans, whether they were paid, whether they were not paid, whether they were just organized criminals looking to take advantage of the situation. Um, It got out of hand. It got ugly. A number of businesses were burned to the ground. Um, There was a lot of looting, rioting, breaking glass storefronts of retail businesses, things of that nature. So we had the board up for about 10 days. We were lucky that we were not personally impacted, but I know a number of people that were. And it's just a very, it's a very scary situation. And it's a very divisive issue. It sucks that we can't really have any sort of real conversation, it seems like, in this country and find middle ground because there's middle ground on every argument. But it's people are either here or there, and it's very scary. So I think we're through the, the worst of that, but I think it's forced a lot of us to take a deeper level of introspection on who we are and what we believe in and truly where we come from and where we stand in these issues. And so from that standpoint, it's been good for me, and I think it's been good for a lot of us. But the future of this country is in peril right now. It's scary. So I want to talk about the what we saw the physical stuff, and then work up to the, the dialogue. I mean, if the conversation isn't happening enough, at least we can have it here at, at least start. I mean, I, I actually posted a video of this on my Instagram as I was up on 13th and Broadway uh, two Mondays ago. Um, it was getting pretty ugly there. There was a little bit of a showdown. So I walked up there just to get a glimpse of what was going on. And there were about 100 cops blocking the entire width of the street. And then there were a couple thousand protesters and they were about 100 yards apart. And then the cops started walking towards them to kind of get them to, you know, just to leave the area or whatever. And the protesters are yelling, F you, you pigs, you know, all that stuff. George Floyd's name, it got ugly. A few of the protesters actually charged at the cops and they opened fire. They weren't shooting at anyone. They were shooting at the ground or whatever and the rubber bullets, but they opened up fire to disperse the crowd. And I mean, it was so scary. I literally walked into it. I was there two minutes later and this happened. And to just see the hate and the anger. And I mean, I give the cops a lot of credit in that situation for, I mean, I I mean, it's so hard. I I mean, I see both sides of this so much. And it's like to sit there and to take that verbal abuse for hours and hours, day after day after day, and then not retaliate. I can't even imagine how difficult that is. Yet at the same time, what they've done is the reason we're in this situation and we've ignored a major problem for way too long. So, I mean, that was just one small example of what's going on in a relatively small city compared to the rest of the country. So I don't know. That's <laughs> it's heartbreaking to see stuff like that. I feel like on the, on the cop side, there's the ones who are physically out there taking the abuse. I'm not sure if they're the ones who decided to go there. I mean, presumably someone up above decided, I mean, here it looks to me in New York, like the response is overwhelming force ahead of time. I mean, there's parades that go, I live in Greenwich Village. So there's like the pride parade, the, the Halloween parade. And I remember when I was here, I mean, I've been in New York since the 80s and it used to be people just show up on the street and watch the parade. But now for a couple of days ahead of time, they put out all these barricades. And the actual experience of the parade is 
like you're just going through, you feel like a pig going to slaughter. I mean, you're not going to get slaughtered, but it's just that you feel like you're corralled and you can't go anywhere and you're trying to figure, and if you ask them, can I get across the street here? They're like, no, not here. And you say, well, where? And they're like, oh, I don't know. You have to ask somewhere else. And you're like, this makes the parade really not a fun experience. Now, this is obviously not what you're talking about, but it's whenever something's going to happen, the number of police officers and the cars and the what began as professionalism, but now feels like militarization is overwhelming. And of course, they win every time. But then as things get bigger and bigger, they get bigger and bigger and bigger shows of force. So someone's making the decision. I don't know if it's someone's consciously doing it, but it's where we are is that someone out there in the street is having to deal with it. The cops are physically there taking the abuse. But I don't think that's, that's been the result of, of someone up above making several decisions and year, decades of, of what looks like an increase. And some seem very, very professional. And people who serve the public, I have huge respect for. Uh, of course, then there's some who kill. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? There's bad, bad eggs in every profession. You know, I, I worked on Wall Street for 11 years. And, you know, if you get a bad trader or you got someone in, you never know, they could be embezzling hundreds of millions or billions of dollars or running a Ponzi scheme or doing things of that nature. And that's going to be front cover world news, right? Same thing if a cop takes someone's life that doesn't deserve it, right? But then you have those people in every profession, but just the stakes aren't as high. So, and now everything is politicized. It's like, I mean, it's, un, it's unbelievable how the story can go from Corona every second of every day and to the point where I can't even open up my businesses and have five people in there want to be in there. But now it's, you can have 5,000 people protesting and Corona is no longer a major issue, right? So it's just like, there are all these hidden agendas, or actually not even really hidden agendas, just public agendas. And it's just, it's sad. It's sad. Did you see people going by your, oh, actually, I'm also curious. What I've read is that there's the people who are there during the day and the people who are at night. And that's when the shift happens between protesters versus rioters or just hooligans. Did you witness that too? Yeah. I mean, when they rolled past my studio last Sunday, it was about one o'clock in the afternoon. Like I said about, about 6,000 people, probably four to five city blocks long. And it was peaceful. I mean, it was definitely passionate. <laughs> people were energized. They were loud. They were vocal. They were chanting nonstop. But otherwise, I mean, it was peaceful, right? They were demonstrating and they were getting their message out. Yeah, typically at night, I mean, people get a little lubed up or, you know, whether they're drinking, whether they're doing drugs, obviously the sun goes down, people get a little more aggressive. And yeah, that's generally when you see the bulk of the damage done for sure. And were you watching your business and seeing things happen? Yeah, I was literally standing out front. And then that first night I actually sat in the studio until three o'clock not that I really could have maybe done much, but I just said to myself, if by some chance they come here and they try and take something that I've worked so hard my whole life to, to build, and I was out not paying attention or not there, like I would probably regret that. So, you know, was sitting in my business, making sure that things were okay all night, probably smart, maybe not. Could have been like, you know, if someone would have showed up and then I would have used some physical force or whatnot. I mean, probably something bad could have happened and we look back and it's like, well, George, anything in your studio is replaceable, but you're not. But at the same time, it's just like, I mean, when you see that happening and it's not, you're not exaggerating it, right? It's happening all around us. You're seeing businesses that people you know getting destroyed. You know, I, I wouldn't have felt good if I wasn't there. So I'm, I'm reading some emotions of helplessness and futility, but also I don't hear hopeless. I mean, it's bordering on that. Like, is it, are we past a point of no return? But I also feel like, I hear in your voice also, we can do something about this. I mean, we are part of this country. We're not passive. We could be. I think many people are. 
Well, well, right. And, and you know, and I look back, you know, I ran across America for the vets. You know, I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, next to the Naval Academy. I have a lot of friends in the military, so I'm a huge military advocate. And I look back at Kaepernick and the demonstrations in the NFL four years ago, and I'll be the first one to admit, I said, look, I understand there's a problem, but there's a better way to do this. Like I said that a bunch of times. I said, I think it's very disrespectful to take a knee to the flag and everything. But so in a lot of ways, we all just kind of ignored it and kind of continued on with our way. So in some respects, I feel like we're getting what we deserve because we didn't take it seriously and they were peacefully protesting. They were using the platform that they had and a national audience of millions of people to get the word out. And we, a lot of people, including myself, chose to look at it from the flag and the military perspective and not necessarily just overlooking the heart of the problem. And so... I mean, that's one thing that I've looked at myself and I've, I've really tried to identify and say, you know, hey, and you see it all over the place, how many people always respond with all lives matter, right? It's like black lives matter. And it's like the first thing I say is all lives matter. But like, that's, that's totally not listening to the crux of the issue. And so I've used this opportunity for me to really reflect more, to understand that there is a serious problem and I need to take action. We all need to take action. We can't just sit on and go on with our lives. But I'll tell you, there is a lot of hopelessness and the state of the economy, the amount of people that lost their jobs right now, a lot of businesses that won't reopen. I mean, the real after effects, I can tell you is going to happen second half of this year into next year, because most people do have enough money to survive a little bit and survive a month, survive two months. Now with these businesses being shut down, people's wages being cut, furloughs, whatever, on top of the deaths and all that stuff, I'm concerned of what's going to happen here. And then you throw all this protesting on top of it. And it's just a powder keg. To say nothing of it, in a couple months, there's probably going to be a pretty big increase in the virus with all these people being clo- well, closer well, to Well, yeah, I mean, we'll see, right? I, I mean, you would think so. I mean, that's why it's like, <laughs> to me, it's unconscionable where it's like you're shutting down small businesses. Like think of a hair salon, right? You go in for a hair salon and you have maybe 10 seats or 12 seats or whatever, and they're all kind of spread out and whatnot. And like that person who worked their whole life to run that business, who's got a lease and who's got kids and has got all that, is not allowed to operate for three months. And maybe they got government assistance, maybe they didn't, but they might be forced to lose their baby and not put food on the table. But now you got 5,000 protesters, no one wearing masks, all screaming, all coughing, all shouting. If there is a serious virus out there, I mean, yeah, it should be spreading like wildfire, which is like crazy dangerous. Like I, I haven't really seen the numbers on, the, on like any big spikes coming from this past weekend, but I mean, it, it could come, right? It's usually like 14 days. But yeah, so... You said earlier that you were using this time. Not not it gave you a chance, but you're actively using this time to reflect. Do you care to share any of the reflections? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're you're isolated, when you're at home, you're spending a lot of time with yourself. And I'm generally used to having just a crazy packed schedule. Like I'm always like, I always say it's one of my worst things that I do is like, I I don't say no to enough of stuff. So I'm so over the top busy, but I kind of thrive on that. And now I'm sitting here and it's like, well, these are shut down. These are shut down. My race schedule for the year is done. My travel schedule for the year is done. Like all this stuff. And I have all this extra time. And I mean, you're kind of forced to reevaluate things. You know, it's like, like, I mean, what else are you going to do? You can always sit around and watch TV or, you know, do whatever. And so, um, especially with these protests, like, I mean, because for me, like I said, like the heart of the protests in the NFL were happening while I was running across America, while I was carrying the flag literally 3,000 miles across the country and how how many times I lost my life, almost lost my life on the road and how big the effort was into that event and how many people sacrificed to raise money and I'm carrying the flag and I see people taking a knee to the flag and it really angered me at my core. 
I mean, it really did. But now I'm looking back and I'm like, you know what? I, I feel in a lot of ways I was being selfish. I don't think it was a direct, you know, and I said, I thought there was a better way to do it. But now when you look at the alternative way that they're doing it, well, hell, let's go, let's go back to four years ago and let's have a real conversation and real dialogue and actually listen to what they're saying. And so that's, that's been a big, big thing for me. And I just have to be honest with myself and do a better job. What do you hear them saying? I mean, there's a lot of voices out there, I guess. You said, let's listen to what they're saying. Well, I mean, look at how many incidents there have been over the last five years. And I feel like it's a lot similar to like veteran suicide. It's like you hear about an incident and you're like, oh my God, that's horrific. And then people just go on with their lives and we can't keep living like this. This country is going to be torn apart from the inside out. I mean, you can easily see a case for another civil war coming in the not too distant future. I mean, it, we're, we're there. So it's like it, enough's enough. Like we have to listen. We have to make changes. Like this stuff can no longer happen. And so it's, it's just, I mean, it's ground up, right? And it starts with, you know, our, our personal attitudes and it starts us being more vocal. I think we all need to more, be more vocal about it publicly and in circles where you see racism exist, or even, even if it's not necessarily racism, just a little bit of, of bigotry or whatever. I mean, it's like, we need to stand up and make sure that those attitudes are not justified under any circumstance ever going forward. It's, it's kind of funny if someone does, I don't know anyone who would say like that group over there because they have a different skin color is, you know, some negative thing. But yeah, but it's all like, right. It's like, I, I look at, cause I think of this whole white privilege argument and stuff. And it's like, I don't come from like a lot of money. I mean, I've worked for everything I've had my entire life from the day I graduated college, but like I grew up, I, I got to go to a Catholic school. I got to go to a college. And I mean, again, I put in the work. I will never take that away from myself. Like I never missed a homework assignment through high school. Like my mom rode my ass and everything, but like I had a mother there that gave a shit. And I was able to go to a good school. And so like just those things that like, I don't necessarily would look back and be like, oh, I was so privileged. Like we didn't live in a big house and my parents didn't make a ton of money. But like, I I look back and I'm like, I had so many advantages over, you know, maybe a a person of color who grows up in a family where the dad's not around and doesn't have the educational opportunities. And maybe there's a lot of drugs and alcohol in the house or whatnot. I mean, I have massive advantages over someone like that. And that's a problem that's rampant across all these communities in our urban cities. And I think we all need to understand that, acknowledge that we do have advantages and and make sure these people are treated as equals, make sure everyone is treated as equals. Now I want to pause this for a second because you, you mentioned the race and what actually we connected on in the first place. Can we jump to that? And, and uh, I know you've told this many, many times. But, <laughs> sure, sure. But no, I know we're getting kind of, getting kind of deep. <laughs> <laughs> but also I think people should hear who, I mean, not everyone has heard of you. So uh, I hope people can get a picture of when you say you haven't had it so easy. I'm thinking like, yeah, the story you're about to tell, if you tell it as you told it to me before, it's like you weren't like just going out and playing a, some touch football with some friends. It sounds like some serious stuff. So how did you run across the country? Why did you do it? What? What gave you the chutzpah to give that a shot? I'll try and keep this as condensed as possible. But no, I, I started running. I ran my first race back in 2007 while working on Wall Street just to overcome a wrist injury. So like typical, right? A lot of people like you get hurt, you're getting older. I was like in my mid to late 20s then. And, you know, that winter I put on a lot of weight. I got in really bad shape, wasn't living the healthiest of lifestyles. 
And so when the cast came off, I couldn't lift. I was like, well, my legs still work. Let's start running. And so I ran that first race, didn't break four hours, ended up eating Vaseline for like the last 10 miles of the race because I didn't understand the difference between goo and Vaseline and they were (laughs) handing it out to medical tents. It was supposed to be used on my armpits and my nipples for chafing and I'm eating it. think I'm getting a caloric benefit from it. Like that's where my running career started. I'm guessing you also have peanut butter on your nipples. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, but... But it was so cool. So it was like, I barely trained for that race. I had no track record as a runner. And then I went out and I banged out a marathon. And it was like really that placebo effect. And I was like, wow, if I could do this without really training, eating Vaseline and feeling off Vaseline the whole time, what if I actually trained? What if I actually put a nutritional plan in place? What if I actually like put some effort into this? And so I started running marathons. I ran like 10 marathons in the next year and a half. All of a sudden, I started putting up some good times. And I started really becoming addicted to the sport and loving the sport. And it all changed for me in 2009. So about two years into my running career. Oh, wait, before you change, can I ask you, what did you love about running a marathon? I mean, I've run six now and I don't think of them as fun. Uh, I, I definitely love the achievement. Yeah. So it's the breaking point. It's the moment in time where your body is screaming to quit. Your mind's telling you to quit. The easy option is to quit and persevering over that moment in time. That's what I love about it. I don't necessarily love running. I don't really necessarily care about like getting a medal or crossing the finish line, like whatever. It's that moment of you versus yourself and finding out what you're made of. And by having those experiences, how that can translate into every other aspect of your life. Like you inspire, you, you take out so much confidence from that moment when, you know, I mean, I just ran the Brazil 135 in January. It's the longest race, hardest race I've ever run in my life. 135 miles through the mountains, through the jungle in extreme heat. And it was a ton of elevation. It was like almost 30,000 feet of climbing. And you're sitting there at mile 60, mile 65. I was so chafed because it was pouring rain that my groin area, I mean, looked like a burn victim. And you're sitting there and you're like, I got 75 miles to go. And I can all, I'm already at the point where I can barely run because I'm in so much pain. And it's like, oh, I'm done. And I'm also in a foreign country. Don't speak the language. Don't really have a crew. And it's like, you have all these reasons why you you can quit. And then you just find a way to just keep going. You focus on that next step. You focus on that next mile. That's all you can control is living in the moment. And you start chipping away. You chip away, you chip away. It's a like relentless forward motion. Like that's, that's like always my philosophy, like running ultras, running across America, just relentless forward motion. And next thing you know, you're at mile 70. Next thing you know, you're at mile 80. It's the next day now. And then 90, 100. Now it's the next night. And you just keep grinding. And then the feeling of getting there, knowing how bad a spot you were in 70 miles ago, and you find a way to get there. It's just like, I love that feeling. I love that feeling. It has nothing to do with the running as to why I like doing these things. So the running puts you in a mental state. The way I describe it, I've not been 65 miles out of 135 miles yet. But to me, that's when I find myself. That's when I take away this you know, when I'm in society, when I'm with people, there's me, but there's also the cover of like who I want, how I want people to see me or what I, you know, artifice and, and affectation, things like that. That's when no one would have a problem with if I dropped out then, no problem. No one has any idea. Or for me, it's like when I'm doing my burpees and it's like now I feel like I'm off scale, a much smaller scale, but it's December, it's 4 a.m. No one, I could tell people I did them and not do them. It's dark out and I do them. To me, the word is glory. It, it, it's a glorious experience. And no one knows. I could, I could not do it, but I do it. And it's me. It's only me. 
that's it's the best. It's absolutely the best. And and yeah, I, I love what you hit on that because to even get yourself into the position to be at mile 60 on that 135, you've had to do so many nights where the cameras are off, the lights are off, no one knows, and you're out training, running the steps at 11 p.m. or getting up at 4 a.m. to crank out your burpees. Or, you know, instead of going to whatever on Saturday, you know, I drive out to the mountains here in East County and, uh, you know, and I'll run out there for five hours. And, you know, no one, no one knows you're out there and you're just out there banging it out. And it's like all those moments over time build up and then they build that, you know, unbreakable spirit in you and that mental fortitude so that when you're in that moment at mile 60, you can draw back on those experiences and, and overcome and persevere. And, and that's, that's what I love about it. I'm glad I asked that. And that was an interruption. You were, okay, so now you've done 10 races, you've done 10 marathons and you, you want to go for more. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done 10 races. And then my goddaughter, Lucy, who was the daughter of my business partner, Mike Horvath, and one of my good friends, she was, she was born with a very rare growth disorder called panhypopituitism. So her body doesn't produce growth adrenal or thyroid hormone. So it's a life-threatening condition, something that she's going to deal with her whole life. And she was so sick as a little girl. And as I had done all my running, I was like, okay, well, you know what? I want to be able to use my running now as a way to help others. And naturally, I was so close to Lucy and the Horvath. It just kind of made sense where it's like, well, I want to do a big run for Lucy. And so I had just started hearing about these ultra marathons. And the year before, Dean Karnazes, the ultra marathon man, had run the Sahara race. And so I followed it. And, you know, at the time, Dean was, you know, arguably the top ultra runner on the planet or one of them, but he definitely helped commercialize the sport and bring the sport into the mainstream probably more than anyone. And so I was following the race. I was following him, but then I started following all these other runners that were like kind of average dudes, just kind of like me, average guys and girls. And I was following their stories and their blogs and everything. I was like, wow, this is, this is really amazing. And so after I kind of followed that and I was always, I've always just been just blown away by the desert. And I was like, how cool would it be to go out there, run 155 miles through the Sahara desert, do it for Lucy, do a fundraiser and really challenge myself to go from running these 10 marathons to taking it to the next level. And so that brought in a whole different element. Now I felt like I was back in square one because this is a self-supported race. I had to carry my own gear. I had to carry my own food. It was multiple stages. It was over five days. Now you're running on sand, you're running in 120 degree heat. So I brought in all these other elements, but now I had the fundraising component and when I decided to sign up for it, everyone thought I was crazy. Everyone thought it was an awful idea. And I just used that as fuel. I put it in my back pocket and just trained and trained and trained and trained really hard. And next thing you know, I fly out to Cairo and everyone within this community of children's growth disorders, like so many other families are like, oh, I, I hear what you're doing for Lucy. Let me tell you about my daughter or my son who has a similar affliction. Thank you. You're running on behalf of all of us. And it just grew like wildfire. So next thing you know, like I go out there, I felt like I had an army of supporters behind me. Six months prior, no one was behind me. And now I go out there and it was a crazy race. I had a couple moments that were really scary. I got lost on day one and ran out of water. And there were some other things, but ended up finishing the race. I finished fifth. We ended up raising like $70,000 grassroots. And I mean, it was just an amazing experience. Came home, ESPN did a piece on it. And I was like, wow, thank God I didn't listen to everyone who told me that was a horrible idea. Like that ended up being one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And I never thought I'd, I thought it would be a one and done just like that first marathon. But after that, it was like, boom, come back, sign up for the next one, a good Australia in six months, and then go to Nepal, go to Chile and end up running like a hundred plus miles in every continent. And so like I had all those experiences over the next four or five years, which was unbelievable. And then when I finally moved out to California, 
and became more of an entrepreneur and had my own flexibility, I was like, well, you know what? I want to do something. Now I've done all this running for Magic Foundation and Lucy. Like, I want to do something really big on American turf, on our soil to really thank our vets and everything like that. And so I just then decided to put the Run Across America together and worked on that for over a year before I actually did it. This element of service seems like it's under, it sounds, I was going to say an undercurrent, but actually it sounds like it's been growing and growing. I don't think of traders on Wall Street as being particularly service oriented except themselves. You'd, you'd be surprised. Uh, I, I, yeah. My people that I worked with on Wall Street were the most philanthropic people I've ever met. Now, granted, most of them do pretty well, so they have disposable income. So it's easier to kind of, for them, the right checks compared to a lot of people on Main Street who really, you know, struggle to make ends meet. But the people, the group that I surrounded myself with, uh, we were always very proactive. We always put on our own events. We always supported each other's causes. Um, very, well, very giving like, people. It sounds like the work is one thing and then separately there's helping others. Whereas what you're doing now or what you describe, the, the running sounds like you're getting something out of it personally, yes, but you're doing more than you would have because of service to others. I don't feel, feel like service, like traders are trading in order to serve others. But I think what you're talking about here is like, and that's been a rising thing. Like you run farther, you push yourself to new events because of Lucy, because of the, the family that the other people told. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, I've said this, I feel like I've gotten so much more back in return than I've given. I've tried to give a lot, but in so many ways, I feel like I, I end up getting more out of it, but it's just a very giving, you know, I say you give for the sake of giving, not to expect in return. I mean, if you give to expect in return, that's just, that's not, that's not a way I want to live. And I've just, I've always tried to be selfless and give, give, give. But in these situations with the running that I've done, I've gotten so much back in terms of relationships and friendships and support. And it's propelled me to be a better runner. Like there's no doubt about it. Like I don't finish fifth place in that race in the Sahara if I didn't have all those people from Magic behind me and me not wanting to let them down and me wanting to set a good example for all those kids. I mean, same thing with running across America. I mean, I was so injured in the first week with 2,800 miles to go and I knew the cause was so important. And a lot of the people from sponsors to some of the financial backers that helped pay for it to everything. And I made promises to them that I would get there no matter what. And if I wasn't doing it for that higher cause or that higher mission, it would have been very easy for me to, to pull the plug and just say, hey, no way I'm going to make another 2,800 miles. I got a knee injury. I got a partially torn Achilles and my ankle's blown up. But I was not going to throw in the ripcord because the mission was so important. Yeah. I'm listening to you partly just as a regular human being, but also it reminds me on a totally different area, but people are like, they're like, Josh, you cannot fly. You can go and only fill up one load of garbage per year it doesn't make a difference because you're one person, there's seven, seven plus billion others, and it doesn't make a difference. Don't bother. All you're doing is depriving yourself of the Eiffel Tower. You know, you could go out and, and just have a nice meal at, you know, at McDonald's or something. Well, I'm not going to eat meat, but you know, they're like, just enjoy yourself. What's this deal? And I'm like, most of the time, I cannot convey how the feeling of, I mean, to me, it's a service. Actually, I've been playing with this. I'm not someone who throws around the word love that often. But what's emerging in me is that I love humanity. I mean, it's, it's a part of something greater. I mean, it, it sounds very, if I really get into it, I sound very spiritual, I sound very religious, but it's, it's completely accessible to anyone. And when I go to the store with someone and they're like, just get the pear. And I see it's from Argentina. And there's pear producers here who are going out of business. And I don't think people in Argentina want to make stuff for Americans. And, and then there's going to be some boat that's carrying them. And 
I know that when I put in the extra work, and it's not really that much work, I go online and look up, okay, where's the farmer's markets around here? Where can I get the local stuff? What I meet, the pair is the smallest thing. What I meet is people and community. And it's always about people. And that's where the love comes in. And I have been almost completely unable to communicate it to people how, and I'm getting more out of it than I'm putting into it. You say it in a way that makes it more clear. Like, I believe you. A hundred percent. I mean, I would not, if I didn't have that incredible visceral emotional reaction, I mean, day five of the Sahara race, the first four days were a marathon long and day five was 58 miles. So you would just run a hundred miles in the first four and you had to run 58. And I had never run longer than a marathon in my life. And now I'm like times two, over two times that after four days in a row of running marathons in that heat, blisters, losing toenails, all cut up, sunburn. I've lost a lot of weight at that point. And it's like, how the hell are you going to do that? And I had a major low about halfway through, hit the wall, bonked. It wasn't looking great, got through it. And then I'll just never forget the feeling like the sun coming down that day. I had been out there running. Now I'm on probably mile 40, 45. And that was the moment I knew I broke the race. And like, I just cried my eyes out for hours. Like the next time while running and I ran the fastest that last 18 miles of the 58 miler, I was passing everyone that was in front of me. Like, I swear I would have caught the leader if it was another 20 miles. I was running on pure emotion, 130 miles into it. All the lactic acid that was there day two, day three, day four disappeared. And it was just this amazing adrenaline rush for hours. And it was like, you don't have that if you're just out there for yourself doing it to finish a race. I mean, it was all those emotions, all the comments, all the people that didn't support me from the beginning, all the people that jumped on later flying out to Death Valley two weeks before that and put myself through heat training and all that, all the work that went into that. And then it just like all came full circle in that moment and hit me like a brick wall. And Alan Jackson's Remember When comes on my iPod. And like, that's such a powerful song. And it just all hit me. And it was just a rush of emotion. I just start crying and I just start running faster and crying and running faster. It was just a super cool moment. And like, I mean, you can't, you can't make up experiences like that. Like you can't like, it was unbelievable. And that's where it's like, oh my God, I had that experience. And it was like, everyone gave me that, you know? I mean, I worked hard for it, but to get that experience once or twice in your life, I mean, was so powerful. And and so that's why, I mean, I I believe that to my core. Like, I'm like, man, I've gotten so much. I'm so blessed. That makes me want to give more. I can imagine that everybody hearing you say that is feeling and hearing different things. On my part, if you weren't saying it was you talking about your personal experience, I would seriously doubt it. And if you said to me, if you do it, you could have this experience too. I'd be like, not really. But then you are saying it about yourself. And it's a mix of feeling like you're human. I have a video of it. (laughs) I mean, we didn't, it was 2009. So I didn't have an iPhone. I had one of those old Canon Elfs, I think on me. And I just remember shooting a a video and I I was so like, it was in my pocket. So it came out in black and white, (laughs) but I just said, remember this moment. And I was crying. I just said, remember this moment. And I just kind of took a little panoram because it was really like running on, it was a lunar landscape at the end of that long stage. It was, it looked like running on Mars. And then we were surrounded kind of by these mountains in the distance. And it was just like this red, reddish clay almost in the Sahara, which the whole rest of it was like this beautiful white sand. It was just a really unique terrain there. And the sun was dropping and I'm crying. I just said, remember this moment. And I mean, I'll remember that moment the rest of my life. And then just coming in like a freight train. And then when the sun dropped, it was just this amazing moonlit, evening, like under the stars, I didn't even really need my headlamp. Like I brought my headlamp out, but I was just running under the the moonlight 
and just running so hard, like running, like everyone that saw me pass them late in there, they were like, my God, like, where did, where were you getting this energy from? Like, it was unbelievable. Like you're a mile 50 of the day five and 150 miles into the race. And like, we've seen you, like I lost eight toenails because my feet from the sand, the heat of the sand, my feet expanded so much that Ooh. I sized up one full size in my shoes. I probably needed to size up one and a half or two sizes because your feet swell so much. And so I was just banging the ends for you know, 100 plus miles. So you end up losing all your toenails. So I mean, you're running in like a decent bit of pain, but like then what the body's able to do and produce, it's extraordinary. Yeah. It's a, a mix of like, I can't wait to do that myself. And also like, that's a lot to do. And also I want like, I want to record this. I mean, I'm recording this, but I want to have it handy. So that every time someone says to me, what's the big deal, man, just get this thing. And you know, don't worry about, you know, you forgot your bag at home. Just get a new bag. I'm like, talk to George. Cause like, you think it's a big deal for me to not get peanut butter on this trip because I didn't bring the container to put the peanut butter in. <laughs> and this guy's 150 miles into his fifth day and you're saying it's a big deal about peanut butter? Like, this is what I love talking to people who've done things on some meaningful scale or some big scale. Because, you know, when I avoid packaging, I think of B. John- Johnson. This woman, she's in, um, I forget where she is, Seattle, Oregon? No, Vancouver, I think. And she, uh, whatever. And she, she and her family four produced less than uh, like a jar full of plastic, of, of waste the whole year. And that's a lot less than me. And so anyway... My point is that you probably have people that are role models for you that you haven't lived up to or that they've done things that you're aspiring to. Totally. But I want to get to the U.S. You're, so you've done the Sahara run. You've done a, some big runs, and but all of them are still are a lot less than, what, 2,800, 3,000 miles. Yeah. And they were organized by other people. This one, you came up with your own. Yeah. So the other ones were all sanctioned races where it was, you know, from that standpoint, yeah, it's like you train, you get your gear, you take a flight to one of the most remote remote places in the world and you run a race with other runners. And I love that because, I mean, to this day, I've met so many great friends. And when you're out there over six days running 150 miles, sharing a tent with a bunch of randoms at night, some people that might not even speak, speak the same language, but you're all there as a common goal. It's just like find a way to get there. I mean, those bonds are really strong at the end of the day where someone's popping my blister and I'm taking <laughs> someone else up and we're sitting by the campfire, breaking bread, trying to figure out how we're going to get through the next day. Like those experiences are amazing. But then coming up with your own idea and look, other people have run across America. I'm not going to say like I'm the pioneer of it. I mean, Forrest Gump, I mean, I mean, he's the pioneer, let's be honest. I mean, the way that we did it, I've seen probably about 10 to 15 other people over the last six to seven years do it from what I can follow on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. No one's done it quite like the way we did it with big organized events along the way, different stops, putting the mission way before the miles. Like, I mean, I committed to, I'm going to be at these four concerts. I'm going to be here for this group run. I want to go to this VA. I want to go to this VFW. I want to do this interview. We want to use the run as a platform to talk about veteran suicide, the epidemic, what our men and women go through when they reacclimate to the civilian world after serving. We wanted to get it out there. So we were always focused on that which again, provided that, that level of, of being a part of something bigger than yourself, which made us all love doing it. But from a physical standpoint, it made it so much harder on me because I was constantly having to stop, have to start, have to drive to an event, have to fly to an event, you know, turn off George the runner hat, put on George the advocate or whatever you want to call me hat. And then all of a sudden flip that switch again, fly back and then start running again. And to get in and out of that mindset 
so many times along the way was so difficult. It was so difficult. I, I, I mean, <laughs> in some ways, I'm like, how the hell did we pull that off? Um, and then the logistics behind it with like organizing the van, organizing the truck, organizing. We had two guys because we have a documentary coming out on, you know, the film crew and then all these stops along the way. And then everything that comes along where you get lost or you're in a flash flood or it's a snowstorm or, you know, we lost the van for a while. And then I decided to swim across the Mississippi River. And like, how are we going to do that with the Coast Guard? And then getting pulled over by Border Patrol because I'm close to the Mexican border and they think I'm a crosser. Or like all the shit that happens out there. And like, again, relentless forward motion and then throwing the injuries. And it was, I mean, I mean it's just, it's, it almost feels like a dream. Like now, like looking back a couple years later, it just, it's like, that really happened? Like, oh my God. You sound like someone who, in order to prove to himself that it really happened, is going to have to do it again. Well, I would, I would definitely, I, I'm definitely going to do it again at some point. I will probably do it with less commitments on me the next time, just to kind of do it more as like enjoyable and, and kind of just not that it wasn't enjoyable, but just kind of take some of the pressure off because I felt so much pressure because I had so many obligations. And again, I didn't want to let anyone down. And I, I ran myself absolutely ragged into the ground trying to do all that stuff. And so, but yeah, I think, Maybe maybe in ten years or so, and go back and do it again. Get the crew back together. I could see that. The band, something of the Blues Brothers. Were there moments when you went went into a VA or a VFW that someone who might have committed suicide? Was there were there touched? were so many. I mean, the moment that touched us all the most was Camille Barnes. She owned an RV park in Carlsbad, New Mexico. So this was about a month into the run. We're in New Mexico, and we pulled in there. She heard what we were doing. She offered to allow us to stay for free at her RV park, which was amazing. And then we got down to chat with her and I actually did an interview with her. We didn't know anything about her story, but her son Malachi had just committed suicide literally a month before this. And he had gone to Afghanistan. He's a part of the 101st Airborne and ended up doing things, seeing things. Um, she mentioned that he said when he came home, mom, when, when you kill people, when you kill a child, you can't take it back. That was a, a, literally a, a quote from her. And as he got back home, no one really understood what his experiences were. He couldn't connect. He isolated. He became depressed. His mom knew there were issues. They were trying to get help. I know they got denied some benefits and everything. And it just led to him going down this path of not feeling worthy, not being able to connect with other people. And then at, you know, I forget how old he was, early 20s, he went there right after high school. So this, this baby, this kid that's, you know, college age, you know, puts a bullet in his head and kills himself. And, and now you have his mother who literally is carrying the bloody shoe he was wearing when he pulled the trigger in her purse every day. She walks around with the bloody shoe that he was wearing as he committed suicide. Her life is devastated. She's trying to keep the business together. She has another child. She has a husband, the whole community, right? It's like, when you see a suicide like that, it's not just the family, it's the community, it's the church group, it's the rec sports league, it's the whole circle that's devastated. And you just feel like in a case like that, that life could have been savable. You know, in so many of these cases, these lives, you feel like if you understand how to connect or touch or reach these people, that maybe these lives would have been savable. And it's just so heartbreaking. And so that, that, that conversation floored us. I mean, after that, I mean, we were in tears. Like, I was like, dude, we're not running the day. I was like, guys, we can't run the day. It just doesn't feel right. And we just sat around just like, wow. But like, it was those experiences that gave such meaning to what we were doing 
And there were a number of them. I mean, that was the one that really rocked us the hardest. But I mean, it's just like, wow, like this is a lot bigger than we thought it was going to be. And what we're doing is very important. So we need, we need to keep rolling. Like every day that we're out there telling these stories, you know, we're making a difference. Do you still hear from veterans today or their families? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, Jeff Kyle was a big part of it. Jeff's the brother of American Sniper, Chris Kyle. I mean, I'm sure you've probably seen the movie or read the yeah. book, but most decorated assassin in, in U.S. history. And so Jeff was a huge part of it. He was at the kickoff in the USS Midway in San Diego. He spent three weeks on the road with us. He's become a very close friend of mine. And, and Talon Smith, who was a good friend of Chris's, and Jake Schick, who started 22 Kill, the 22 Push-Up Initiative. He was a big part of it. Al Kovac, who's the chairman of Paralyzed Veterans of America. It's an unbelievable nonprofit that's been a while around for a lot of time that does a ton of great work for whether it's amputee or wounded veterans when they come back from deployment, getting their VA benefits and all that stuff. So like, I mean, and these are all people that are still close to me. And then there was just so many of just the random conversations. I mean, you don't realize how many veterans are out there. I think the number's like 22 million around the country. I mean, that, that's a lot. That's what, one in seven and a half or so, whatever it is. So it's like, and especially these towns in Arizona, Texas, Tennessee, Arkansas. I mean, we'd run through towns, it'd be 80, 80% ex-military, right? 80% vets. And so when they see someone running with the American flag, supporting the cause, I mean, the love, the outpouring of love and just, hey, I'm not a runner, George, but can I come walk a mile with you? Can I come jog two miles with you? Can, like, can, might, we're going to bring some food out. It was just amazing like to see the people that cared. And it, it really... It really told a very different story than the mainstream media because it's like at the core, the love in the country and the fabric of America is strong. And it's like, you don't see that by watching television. And it was awesome to experience it and have those conversations every single day. And also now going back to the beginning of the conversation, it also for you to react as you did to Colin Kaepernick makes sense. For you to reflect is going to be yet more challenging. And I'm also curious the community that you formed around you are what's the level of, of well, right. I mean, I mean what, most of those reflect? people that were surrounding me or the people that I was involved with this were, were very upset with that. And this was going on. This was fall. This was fall of 16. This was, I was out there running during the election. I was out there during that football season, like all these things that were hitting fall of 16, you know, everything with Trump and Hillary and all the stuff like this is, I'm in the middle of it. Right. And so, you know, we were getting washed out because, you know, Trump was dominating the media like every single day. But here we're out there, you know, supporting something that's very important. And meanwhile, you have all this divisiveness in the NFL, all these athletes getting behind the cause. I'm surrounded by a bunch of military guys and I'm seeing firsthand. I mean, they volunteer for this. They volunteer to go put their lives on the line to protect our freedoms. So we have the opportunity to go to NFL games. I mean, I'm a huge NFL fan. I go to two or three games every year. I've been a Lions fan since I was back five or six years old. And I'm like, man, these guys go over there. I could have went over there. I was healthy enough. I went to Wall Street, got to have a great career. They go over there. They come back. They're so effed up in the head or they're injured. Or they've lost a leg and they've given all that. And then they come back, they can't get a job. And they feel like there's no other option than to commit suicide. And we're taking a knee to the flag. Are you shitting me? Like that, that was like my perspective. I'm like, there's a better way to do this. It's so disrespectful. But, you know, now I, I've, I've evolved in the standpoint of like, it wasn't a direct slap in the face of the flag, even though a lot of people took it that way. It was us not listening and just like we always do. If you're over here, 
you say this, if you're over here, you say that, and there's no come together. And I recognize that like, I should have done a better job with that. And I, I should have listened more, but I understand why I responded the way I did because I was so involved and I'm surrounded by all these guys that I love and we're doing something big that like, and I'm carrying the flag every day and you're going to take a knee and you're getting paid millions of dollars. Like, come on. So it's a very complex issue. You know, it, it really is. There's, and there's no perfect answer to any of it, in my opinion. Yeah, part of me is thinking the idea of protest is there's no right way to do a protest that the people who are you're protesting that, that you're trying to say to, you're trying to disrupt them. There's nothing. I mean, of course, you will always get back. That's not the best way to do it. You should do it differently. Mm. On the other hand, if you don't do it, you're never going to get their attention. And, you know, that's why Martin Luther King's book was why we can't wait. I know every time we do stuff, you think, just wait. Well, we can't wait anymore. But I'm also thinking, given your level of reflection, the way you felt then and what you're saying, how you're feeling now, could they have been more effective then or could people be more effective now? Or is, this, is there no way around that some people are going to do things that other people find annoying? There's always going to be some people infiltrating who are going to break some stuff just because they can. Everyone's got to be ready for change. And as much as you hate to say it, generally, it takes a major breaking point. I mean, in situations to really make a difference, right? I mean, it takes a lot of people. I mean, just think about people making major changes in their lives. And you're probably going to see that more than ever than we've ever seen in our lifetimes, including 08, 09. I think coming out of this thing where people are literally going to hit rock bottom. And I mean, you're already seeing, you know, like child abuse and child molestation, suicide, all these numbers are up significantly from this thing. And I'm not talking, and that's over top of just the deaths from the virus. But I mean, sometimes it takes a breaking point or hitting rock bottom to force change. And maybe George Floyd and that horrific imagery, I mean, just, I mean, it brings tears. I mean, literally, and the fact that the three other guys that are there, and I mean, not just the, the guy on top of them, but that they're there. A guy goes and checks his pulse and whatever, and no one thinks to say, dude, he can't breathe. Like, he can't freaking breathe. He's crying for his mom. He's saying he can't breathe for eight minutes. I mean, maybe it takes something like that in today's world of social media where everyone sees it versus 20 years ago, no one would see it, right? And having that out there, maybe that's the breaking point. You know, maybe it's the low point. I, I hope to God it is because it can't get much worse. I mean, it can't get much worse than we have right now without a full-on war. People say that a lot about the environment. Maybe we have to hit something really horrible. And I'm like, millions of people are dying because of the virus. That is, that is the environment didn't think like, how are we going to get those humans? We behave in a certain way that we know will produce certain outcomes. And we get like a generation ago to say the whole world is going to be on lockdown they would say that is unimaginably horrible. We must hit a rock bottom so that before before that, because that's below <laughs> rock bottom. And then it happens and like, I hope nothing really bad happens after this. I'm like, what does it take? Like how, how much do we have to, I mean, up at my mom's house where I was before, it's, it should be pristine up there. I pick up a piece of garbage every day. It's right outside. It's right there. I don't even pick up the cigarette butts because that's like, it's too small to pick up. Like I want to pick up bigger things. Because also if I picked up that, I'm, I would never get more than a few yards from the house. Actually, I was very pleasantly surprised that after three months of picking up garbage every day, and I was picking up like five or six pieces a day, usually because I like, didn't want to skimp. And actually now I'm having to go like a half a mile from home to pick up the garbage. But past that, it's everywhere. And there's one particular time 
my mom, my mom ran a marathon, her first marathon in her, uh, I think she was 66 years old, 67 years old. No kidding. And yeah. Yeah. She saw me run in Philadelphia and in Philadelphia, it's like a kind of cloverleaf. So you pass the same spot a few times. And so she's very talkative. She's talking to people around her and there, this family is watching their husband, father run, who's an orthopedic surgeon. She's like, I thought it was really bad. Isn't, isn't really dangerous to run for your knees and whatever. And they're like, yeah, what he says is it's, if you have bad form, yes. But if you have, if your form's okay, no problem. And so when I, I crossed the finish, sorry, I just jumped into the story. I saw I crossed the finish line and she's like, all right, I'll do it. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know what she's been doing. And, and I'm like, well, do what? And she goes, I will run a marathon. Uh, she said, I'll, I'll train and do my best. So that year she hurt her leg, but the next year she ran. So, so she still, she, she's doing 10,000 steps every day. So uh, when I'm up there, I'm combining my going out and picking up garbage with walking with her, getting her 10,000 steps. And because she's run a marathon, I mean, she's run like every single road around there. So at one point I say, let's go this way. And she goes, oh, I've never gone that road. I was like, oh, that's cool. So I get to go with my mom and explore this road. We're walking along and do you know the Hudson Valley School of Painting? There was this real, this realism, this realist painting that happened like around here, along the Hudson River. And it's these beautiful landscapes. And uh, this, we walk along and we cross this, it's a tiny little bridge over a little stream. And to the left is this quasi forest and to the right is quasi plains. And I look over to the left and it's, it could easily be a, a stunningly beautiful painting. It's just the stream going through the woods, winding its way through. To the right, it's a stream winding its way through, but the stream kind of expands into like a marshy sort of thing. Stunningly beautiful. Except there's a giant bag of garbage that's bar- bursting open of used diapers. In the stream is a, a big plastic bucket and it's just a crying shame. And I say to my, you know, I'm like looking at this, I'm like talking to my mom about it, about both the beauty that if you look, if you squint, so you don't see the stuff, it's like, you don't see the diapers. And so my mom says up there, you have to pay to get the trash hauled. It's not automatic, like in, here in the city. So if you don't pay out of the trash hauled, you can de- bring it to the town dump, but then you have to pay also by weight, or you can throw it out the back of your tr- of your car and you save a little money. And she's like, that's what people do. It's like, they just throw their trash out the window. And I'm like, this to me is well past rock bottom because for me to put myself on the mindset of someone who will throw used diapers out the window of their car, maybe they weren't doing it to save money. I don't know if someone, this does not look like an accident. And by the way, a lot of it is beer cans. So now you're drinking and driving and throwing stuff out the window. And I'm like, this is for me to uh, empathize because as leadership, I try to practice empathy. I try to imagine what's it like to be someone who I, I didn't vote for Trump. I don't like what he's doing his environmental policy among other policies that I don't like of his, but I can empathize why people would vote for him. I can get there. It's not pleasant. I don't really feel good about it, like to get to where I'd be like Trump, but to throw garbage out, to throw diapers out a window into a stream like that, to plan it. You don't accidentally have a bag of diapers in your car. And to get myself there is really, really dark. It's really uncomfortable. And to say that, we hope we don't hit an environmental rock bottom after we're already doing that is to me shocking. It, I mean, except if I get there, then I can be like, yeah, what? I don't want to get there right now, but to get where I can be like, you know, this sort of feeling like burn it all. If, if I can't, if, if it's horrible for me, then what have I got to lose? And- yeah. I, I think just too many people just look at it like, Hey, it's a problem for future generations. Kick the can down, the, you know, and 
it's not going to impact me today, tomorrow, or next week. So why am I going to spend my time worrying on it? And I'm not saying that's right. I just, I just think that's human nature. Yeah. And like, that's, that's the challenge. People, people talk about carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous and, and mercury and plastic. And really it's the mindset of someone who has never been heard. Yeah. And they're like, well, if you don't care about me, why should I care about anyone else? And that kind of psychology, that kind of understanding, awareness, empathy, compassion, as well as discipline and drive, no one talks about that. No one practices that. And we've had generations of, of this country not doing that. I mean, you're talking about the stuff that you're seeing in San Diego and, and playing in, across the country. There's no one is, everyone calls the other entitled. Everyone calls the other like feeling like they deserve stuff that they haven't worked for. There's all this I don't know where I'm going, but it's, you were talking at the beginning, if I remember right, about being heard, listening, understanding, making others feel understood. It's, I don't see a lot of that. I don't know how this is going to come out. I was talking to someone earlier today, New York Times bestselling author, multiple times over, uh, books on leadership. And we were talking about the guy, probably one of many who drove a car through a crowd of protesters and it turns out he was the head of the KKK in his region, something like that. I don't know how this is going to sound. What's his story? He was once a little kid running around, I doubt thinking like, who am I going to kill? Or who am I going to drive my car into? Why does he want to do that? I don't think he's going to stop and people in his community aren't going to stop until they feel heard either. And I don't want to give sympathy, I, I, but I, there's a difference between agreeing, supporting and listening and understanding. And... I feel like that's a big piece of it. Even the people we stridently disagree with and feel are even evil. I think, I think that has to be a part of it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think a lot of that's learned behavior at an early age, right? I mean, systemic, what we're talking about here. I mean, this isn't stuff you, you're not born into being a racist. Like you don't wake up and, you know, when you're three years old and all of a sudden you have a view of other people that way. Like that's, that's learned behavior at an early age. I don't know how to get to change our culture to, I mean, this is my goal is like to change our culture to where we listen more. And I mean, it, it would be such a breath of fresh air if we had just decent leadership from the top down that could actually have real dialogue. And I think honestly, the two party system makes it so challenging because both parties have gotten so extreme and they're so controlled by special interests that to break the establishment, like truly, I mean, to break the establishment with a two-party system right now, it's impossible. No one can win as an independent and there's not enough money behind a third party or whatnot. So you're sitting there and it's like, you have to be so beholden to the NRA or you have to be so beholden to get those votes that to actually go out there and, and like we're doing, like having good dialogue back and forth and being able to say, well, hey guys, like, you know, you look at like the mass shootings and whatnot. Like I'm all for the Second Amendment, but do I do I think we need a bunch of semi-automatic weapons all over the place? Absolutely, absolutely not. And I'm like, and I think most people would agree with that. I mean, I think most people in this country are fiscally conservative and socially liberal, and by and large, not everyone, but I'd say the majority is are like that. And I think if we had a party and a candidate that could go out there and say, let's let's actually do common sense gun reform, or let's actually come to the middle on some of these issues, people might follow, but it's, it's not, it's not that way. And it's almost impossible to have the expectation that a president can do that is that's just not the way the system's set up now, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I feel like to change that, 
it's going to take some people, you know, it's going to be like as hard as running across the Sahara Desert, but a lot of people doing that. Now, some people will have to work really hard, but some people can just follow along. I think something missing when they hear, I mean, it, is it unchangeable? No. This country was formed out of a monarchy. And that's got to be hard to change. And it took a war, a really bloody war. And it will take some people working really hard. Most people won't have to work that hard. They can follow. Here's what I don't hear from anyone. I hear from you. The more that you give, the more you're going to love it. No one gets that. The joy. I mean, not everyone wants to be a leader. Not everyone wants to go the full thing. Most people just want to give money and be a part of it. Okay. But the more that you give, the more you're going to get back out. And it's always going to get more back out, even if it doesn't happen in your lifetime. And this part, this joy, people keep saying, what joy? What are you talking about, Josh? Where's the joy in skipping a meal because everyone's going to a restaurant where you don't want to eat anything? That doesn't sound very joyful to me. I'm like, ah, it's like, what could be more joyful than to act on a value of yours, even when it's challenging and to find out who you are? That's how I put it. For you, it was you were, I think it's something what you were talking about. When you're in, you don't see the finish line. But at some point, people are having, I think, the conversations like this, wherever they go, that we're going to be passing people by, passing people by, toenails left behind. <laughs> and we're going to be all misshapen and our feet are going to be too big and stuff like that. And knowing that a couple generations later, people will have forgotten it. But at least for a couple generations, we got, we got a little more peace. And it's it, to me so clear that doing burpees in the dark is I'm not doing it blindly. I'm not doing it ignorantly. I'm not doing it because someone told me to. I'm doing it because I, I started doing it and I found out this resonates with me. And all the environmental stuff is just like that. And our, our culture is not like that. What are we, 80% obese in this country? Yeah. Now take out the ones that have medical conditions. Take out the ones that like it. And then, but then keep in mind that I think diet books are like the best-selling books book category is something really high. So that means there's a lot of them who don't want to be there. And yet we don't change culture. We don't change ourselves. I mean, some of it's internal, some of it's external. And we have a culture of, of, I mean, wherever it is, let's hope that it's changing or that it has an impetus to change. I, I believe that after all this lockdown, people are seeing bluer skies. I driving into the city yesterday. I couldn't believe the clarity. I, I, I totally, I totally agree. I mean, I've actually had that conversation with a lot of people like going out when I go out to the desert, out the train in the mountains. And I'm like, Oh my God, like it's crystal clear blue skies and just like the air quality and just, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely been some healing over the last three months. I just think that if we don't, the reason what drives me to leadership in the environment, leadership first, environment second, is that I think without leadership, people will just fall back to their old ways. They're like, oh, it's so beautiful Beijing skies now and, and the, the canals in Venice so clean. And then when the flight restrictions end, they're going to want to see the Venice before it gets dirty again, not realizing, like the people in traffic who are like, everyone else causes traffic, I'm just driving. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just hard that there's so much noise out there, right? And I mean, everything that's going on in this world right now, like how could the environment ever possibly, or veteran suicide, how could it ever possibly be at the top of the list, Right. Like, I mean, how, I'm not saying it shouldn't be there, but I'm just saying with everything else going on, all these media organizations, they're getting paid per clicks. I mean, everyone driving, you know, all these influencers on social media, like whatever creates the most engagement on their personal profiles. So 
like, I mean, that's, that's the society and the bubble that we're in, unfortunately. And without having some really key prominent influential people out there talking about veteran suicide or children's growth disorders or the environment, the focus is going to be on what everyone is seeing, everyone is talking about. And so these things get drowned out. And unfortunately, that's, that's the state of life right now. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you to your point, the, the necessity for leadership, 100%. I know I could so much easier. I could get so many more listeners if I just now talked about, uh, you know, there's a child slavery ring running out of a pizza shop in DC. Totally. And that'll get me a lot more views or listens, but I, I'm sticking with this. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. All right, environment. When you talk about the environment, the environment sounds like something you care about. Is it, is it something that's a big thing for you? Is it meaningful? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I haven't ever like put it as like a, a primary focus of mine with any of my runs or done a lot of like personal fundraising for it. But like, I live to be outside. I live the track. I mean, I've been to I think 42 countries now. I mean, I love the world. And I always say like relationships and experiences, like doing meaningful things with the people you love, like that's what life's all about. Like that's my personal kind of why. And like those best experiences of people I love are when we're out exploring the world, you know, and, and seeing a new place and challenging ourselves to doing something physical out, out in the environment. So, I mean, I absolutely, I love it. That's part of the reason why being cooped up in my apartment these last three months has been, you know, taking such a toll on me, you know? And, I love how you like, your first response is, well, I haven't like run across the country for it. You could do more than virtually anyone alive and still like it's less than running across the country. It's cool to drive across this country. I've done it multiple times, but to take 5 million steps and see the, the, the colors change through Arkansas and the small towns in West Texas and the beauty of the, the cactus forest in Arizona and then all like running through all the urban cities in the East Coast and literally doing it step by step. Such an amazing way to see our country and you realize just how incredible the USA really is. I mean, it is, it's amazing. I mean, it's so much beauty out there. I mean, Tennessee, the, the mountains in Eastern Tennessee are just breathtaking. And just Oh man. Yeah. I, people ask me why I take the train across the country. I'm like, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And the train is not even close to, I rode my bike from Philadelphia, Maine and back. And when my mom drove me in the city this time, when she had to come in for a dentist appointment, because the dentist is here. And so it wasn't like a gratuitous trip just for me, but I was like, if we're going to have a virus for another several years, I should get a new bike and so that I can put panniers on. And it's 100 miles away. That's a day trip. And then if I stay there for a while, great. So now, thank you. As an aside, you're spurring me to... Apparently, bikes are hard to come by these days, but I'll get one soon enough or get a new one. So when you think about the environment, what do you think about? I mean, if you act, if you do something, what motivates you on the environment? I mean, being able to enjoy it the way that we enjoy it now. I mean, hundred percent. I mean, I, unfortunately, like when you, when you look at it, I mean, you know, I look at, <laughs> you look at industrializing nations like, like China and India, and it's like, 
what's going on out there now is is so disgusting. And I, I think maybe that leads back to kind of the conversation earlier where it's like the family that dumps the trash in the in the forest, you know, it's like, well, relatively speaking, compared to what's going on in China and India and how filthy and disgusting it is out there, is that going to make a difference relative to getting them on board? You know, and actually, I mean, how much more pollution and damage is coming from there? So, I mean, there's there's that part of the argument. But for me, like, I want to be able to continue exploring. Like, I want my kids one day to be able to do the same things that I've been able to enjoy and, and for whatnot. And again, it's something that we get busy, we take for granted. And that's why I love doing what I get to do and have a couple big races a year, have a couple big adventures. It, it just reminds me how important the environment is and our planet is you know, not just to all of us, but to our own personal psyche, to our own mental state, being able to get out there and being physical, being active, like being healthy, like it's all, it all kind of comes together. So, I mean, that's, that's my view on it. Can you be a little more, you talked about the sands in the Sahara turning from red clay to white sand. You talked about the Tennessee mountains. You talked about the Arkansas, swimming across the the, uh, Mississippi. Antarctica. I mean, amazing. I mean, Antarctica, so, I mean, I did that race in 2014 and we flew to Ushuaia, Argentina. That's the southernmost city in the world. You have to take a boat down two and a half days across the Drake's Passage. The Drake's Passage is arguably the roughest seas in the world. So you're going like this the whole way. Everyone's seasick by the time you get there. But then when you're there and you're like literally in a place that's untouched, uninhabited, all you see are whales and penguins and just the most beautiful skies. The, I mean, the water is so clear. You can see for hundreds of feet deep down. I mean, untouched and then get to go out there and run in that environment. I mean, it's just like, I mean, that was another one where I just kept looking around. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, or, am I really here? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just beautiful. And then honestly, maybe the prettiest place I would say is, uh, is the Atacama Desert in, in northern Chile. Because that race, you had everything. You had salt flats, dried up riverbeds, sand dunes, mountains, volcano, hot during the day, cold at night, incredible skyline. I mean, that was just a breathtakingly beautiful place. And you're in the middle of nowhere and it's just untapped. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And there's so many places like that around the world. And, you know, that's, I mean, part of the reason why I just have such an appreciation I mean, I've gotten to experience those places. Given that appreciation, given that feeling that you had when you were there, and also maybe tinged with what you see in the industrialized nations or industrializing nations and the thought of the future kids. These are some, to me, I, I sense strong, intense emotion when you talk about those. Based on that emotion, based on those feelings, this is what I was talking about earlier. I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on that feeling. Now, most people, when they hear this, they think, what's the biggest thing I could do or what's the little thing I could do? It's not about the world. It's about you acting on something that matters to you. And there's a couple of constraints. It can't be something you're already doing, not something you tell someone else to do. I got all these leaders and they're like, oh, I'll start a committee. And, but fine, do that. But also for this, it's something you do yourself. And so something new, something that you do with your own hands. And it has to have a measurable effect, not just learning or awareness. And those are great, but the environment reacts to our behavior. So something behavior makes a difference. Big or small, I don't care. Just as long as it's acting on something that you care about. Yeah, you know, one one thing I think about, which I've actually kind of kicked around because so I own my my three fitness studios here in, in San Diego, Orange County. And so we have, you know, 
few hundred members in each one. And so it's a really strong, close-knit community. And we do a lot of stuff here. We have There's a big homeless issue around here that we've looked at doing. But I mean, I, I think it would be it would be cool for us that something small but something measurable, like you said, that we're not doing is like, okay, let's go out. Let's get the whole group together, a couple hundred people. Let's go do an outdoor workout one day together. And then let's do something to help clean up the community, right? And right now, I mean, there's, I mean, businesses need help cleaning up. I mean, there's broken glass and damage and things out in the parking lots right now. There's things we can do in the environment. I actually think that would be really cool. Because again, you always... You always focus on like what's considered the most pressing need. And like where I'm at downtown, it's a massive homeless issue. You know, every couple of weeks, you'll see someone that's passed out on the side of the road, probably DOA, probably overdosed. And it's right there in front of us. So like the initial reaction is, well, if we're going to do something in our local community, right now it has to do with probably the protests, the damage to small businesses or the homeless issue that's literally outside our front door. So we have to be more proactive about, no, this is what we stand for and let's do something you know, different in the environment. And so, I mean, I, I don't know if that's like a, a perfect answer there, but like, I mean, that's something that like I would commit to doing for sure. I don't know if you know John Lee Dumas, he was a previous guest and he pledged to pick up garbage from the beach near where he lived and lots of middle steps, but long story short, now I don't run anymore. I only plog. Plogging is like the Swedish for, word for picking up garbage while you run. So when I run, I always pick up garbage. I think of John every time I do it. And it's just a shift that I've made. And it's not a big deal. Actually, I've been on TV down twice because of it. And actually, it's, it's weird. You do these little things. It, what difference does it make? And then it becomes on TV. And then other people do it. And then it gets bigger. And everyone's like, oh, what one person does doesn't matter. And you're well, like, well, the same thing. What difference does one vote make, right? I mean, you can make that argument for a lot of things. Is your vote going to make a difference? Is my vote going to make a difference? No. But if everyone thinks that way, then you're never going to get it anywhere, right? Well, I think so, it's bigger it, than that. I think it's a... Now corporations and, and government p- officials bring me in to advise them. Totally. So it's not just little things adding up. I think little things, if done meaningfully, inevitably lead to big things. Yep. So let's make it a smart goal, a specific, measurable, achievable, realistic time bound. So what might you do with them? And you might be getting others to do it, but as long as you yourself are also doing some of the picking up, then that qualifies by the criteria that I've developed for this. How long do you think it would take what would the goal be? What would something specific? I think we could put something on the books within a month. You know, you want, to, you want to get the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, make sure you have time to get people there and everything. But specifically, like, find an area in San Diego where there is a significant issue that needs help, that needs volunteers. Let's go get everyone outside the studio. It's probably a good thing anyway. Go do a really cool creative workout. Be community bonding in the spirit of bringing people together. And then go out and for three, four hours, you know, serve, serve the community. And whether it's at the beach, picking up trash or going into the mountains or, I mean, we've, we've got everything here. I think that's totally something we could help with. I think that'd be awesome, actually. So if we schedule the second conversation in about a month, then you could, could you talk about how it went? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Now, all right. So I walked you through this process. I like that. I like that you're the accountability. You're putting me on the spot. I love it. I may be. Uh, yes, accountability. And my goal is not to put you on the spot. No, no, no. But accountability, like, I mean, that's what that's, I mean, that's part of it. Like when you do these races and you sign up for, you know, a fundraising mandate or whatnot, I mean, the ancillary sort of benefit that you're getting is that dude, your name and your reputation and who you are as a person is on the line. And you don't want to be one of those people that 
says they're going to do shit and doesn't execute and doesn't go after it. So now you put your John Hancock on it. You better work hard and you better deliver. You better do everything in your power to give your all to, to meet your goal. And, and so I've, I've done that. So let's, we're going to do it. That's part of it. That's half of it. The other half is that when you are on after this, now I think I hear in your voice an expectation that you're going to enjoy this. Of and course. I hear in your voice also, this is something you've been meaning to do. And now you get your chance. I think there's a lot of people out there who are like, I do mean to do something environmental. I'll get to it. I just think, and again, this has been a very challenging period. And I think a lot of us have been forced into playing defense. And I know like myself personally, you know, I, through gyms, I own a number of restaurants. I have a lot of financial interests that have been hit really hard. And like when that happens and you're like, oh shit, like I'm watching everything I've worked for my whole life being taken by something that's out of my control. It's very hard to deal with at times. And so it's very hard to get fired up to play offense, to go do what I'm used to doing because I'm sitting here and shaking my head. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. Finding people who could use service more is going to, is probably going to make you feel better and probably going to help yeah. recover. Yeah. Both and, internal- and we're, we're back playing offense. Like it's just, yeah. It, it, I mean, it all kind of feeds itself. So that experience, I think you think you're going to feel good. I think however you think you're going to feel is, is it's going to be much more. It's yeah. going to be much more. So as, as much as I'm providing accountability to you, it's for the listeners so that they can hear, oh, what happened with George? And you know, it may come back and you say, Josh, I mean, who knows what may happen tomorrow? It may be impossible. Maybe a month from now you say things happened. Yep. But then that's why I like bringing leaders in because leaders don't just, I don't know what might happen. It might be, a, you know, it might be mentioned to someone and someone does all the work and it's all, it may be easy, it might be hard, I don't know. But it's not going to be a cakewalk. It's not going to save the world. You're going to feel great. And that's what I want to bring. Like, that's what I want to share with the world. Like, it's not going to be a cakewalk. It's not going to fix everything just because you tried, but you're going to be glad you did. And you're going to want to do more. And if that gets out to, you know, as that gets out, that, that cultural shift is like to a shift of of service, of, of listening, of caring. That's what, that's what I'm trying to get out there. And it's not a burden. It's not like you're going to, yes, you're not going to see game of Thrones. Yeah. So the listeners couldn't see that I did an eye roll there. <laughs> and you're going to be glad you missed it. You know, it's, I, that's what I, I, one of the main things I want to get out there. So I'm thinking of you because it, it, when I pledge to do something, it helps me a lot to have someone hold me accountable. Totally. And, but it's really for the listeners that I, I really want to get that out there. All right. So we're going to talk in a month. Anything to wrap up with? Anything you want to share before anything I didn't think to ask? No, I just, I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, I appreciate your time being on the show. I mean, these are, these are all things that, you know, we talk about that are so important in my life that drive my actions, that drive my state of mind, that drive my happiness. And it's always, it's always great to be able to share them and, you know, sometimes like reflect on stories. Like, I mean, I haven't told that, you know, crying in the desert story for a while. And, you know, I always look back and I mean, it almost brings me to tears like real time, like just thinking about the power of that and the importance of trying to, you know, create moments like that. You can't create them, but they just kind of happen based on work and planning and dedication and perseverance. And it's, it's a powerful thing. And I just, I always love to reflect on it and share it. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll inspire one person. Maybe it'll inspire a couple people. And, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, we did well here and, you know, and I, I love hearing your views on, on everything. And, you know, just, um, I'm, I'm excited to, to partner with you on this initiative and to make it more of a focus in my life. And, uh, you know, and keep grinding forward. Well, George Simmel, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. 
George said what I've tried to but haven't succeeded in doing, that communicating how much serving others brings to my own life, expanding it, filling it with joy, with community, with connection, and emotions at the pinnacle of what humans experience. It sounds spiritual. It sounds religious. Knowing that he'll find more than he expects from acting on his environmental values, I bet that he's going to end up doing a lot more after he finishes this. While some might think it could detract from his supporting veterans and his other causes, I predict that it will augment it, that he'll find that the more he does environmentally, the more it adds to these other things, not detracts. Well, we'll see. So I'm looking forward to the next episode. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.